Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We are talking about episode five of season one, just to be clear. And the main topic in this episode, we I would say, is divorce, right? And, and Amir's status as a garouche, as a divorcee. Um, you know, most weeks there's sort of a number of different topics to choose between. This week that seemed to really be, uh, again, other than maybe thinking about um, laws, you know, white lies slash non-full truths, uh, it seemed to like that, like the divorce was sort of the central piece of this episode, which made the most sense to um, to discuss. I mentioned uh, before when I was introducing the episode before before watching that you know, most weeks, the structure of our conversation is largely like Rabbi Schatz and I discussing and people sort of chiming in throughout. Um, This episode is a little bit more complicated because as opposed to say an episode when we discussed like people being unmarried in the Jewish professional world, an episode about like divorcees to two, you know, unmarried rabbis is like a little bit more complicated because we, like, I don't have you know, personal experience on this front um, of like what it's like out in the world as someone who has this, you know, who has been previously married and uh, and is trying to figure out how you navigate that, how you navigate telling the truth, when to tell the truth, not true. I mean, you know, when to divulge this information to people, right? All of these pieces that Amir is dealing with. Um, and one piece I think it's important to note also is sort of the, the context in which they find themselves, right? Um, Robert mentioned before, you know, it's one thing to, to be 20 somethings in sort of the modern Orthodox, in the swamp, as they call it in Katamon, the Bika, the swamp, um, which is what people call Katamon. Um, you know, it's very much this sort of like young, professional people looking to get married and settle down, like very intensely kind of scene. Someone has the sound on from the episode. I don't hear anything, Michael. Okay, no one else seems to, so I don't know. Um, but you know, that the context in which they find themselves is obviously different than many other contexts in which, you know, I think for most people who are living, you know, who are in their 30s or 40s, it's a very different kind of conversation than Amir trying to date 20-somethings um, being a divorcee. But uh, I think it's just an interesting topic to sort of delve into a little bit. I, you started with a class before the episode, just talking about in Jewish thought, the sort of status of um, multiple marriages. We talked about how mm-hmm. this week, uh, Avraham actually in this week's mm-hmm. Parsha is the first person to sort of get married after having been previously married. And it's certainly an idea, you know, the Torah believes in, no fault divorce that people, or again, men at least, can easily get out of a marriage. It's a little different for women, but there isn't like there isn't supposed to be, as far as we can tell. And I think I think I can say there isn't supposed to be like a strong stigma attached to people not, you know, people's relationships not working out. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, the Torah, see, the, the the Torah, the Talmud seem to believe that. If a relationship isn't right, get out of it, and both people should find someone new, and that's fine. And yet, there is this sort of stigma that we see in this episode um, attached to someone who is divorced and 
you know, even as he says, like, it wasn't either of us that, you know, it wasn't that either of us were deeply flawed. We just weren't the right fit, but still there's a stigma attached. So I just wanted to sort of bring that up. And I don't know if Rabbi Schatz or if anyone else in watching this episode, if there was anything that sort of jumped out to you specifically on that, that topic of what, you know, what Amir is going through of trying to figure out how much to divulge, when to divulge, trying to sort of fit into a culture in which by virtue of his marital status, he's like a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the I feel like it's two different conversations. What, when to divulge and how much to divulge. I think that, that that's all part of like the courting game, right? Of how, when to share certain kinds of information. And um, I actually don't fault um, Nati or Yifat in this particular case of having different names because they're just trying to figure one another out. And when you can't do that in person, using a name that is not yours um, to be able to just decide if that's a person who you're interested in is one thing. It's another thing if you're sitting across from them at coffee and you make up a whole story about your life. So I think that's that's one um, that's one thing. The thing about the the divorce piece that that really struck me and that is not the way that um, we often think of marriage in Jewish law is that it was very focused on the man. Very often when we think about marriage and divorce, we're often concerned with the status of the woman, not the status of the man. And in fact, I did quite a bit of research um, later earlier today, later in the afternoon, where I was trying to figure out, like, do I just not remember anything about what the man is called if he's a divorcee or is it really just the woman who kind of has these points against her if she's been um if she's been given a get if she's divorced so it it is interesting that the that the tv show takes the opposite look on marriage and divorce of really focusing in on the man when in tradition and in halakha even the man is not the person for whom you have to be concerned about being divorced it's the woman so based on her her status and whether or not she's been married before and does she have children and did she have a get and and all these things that's all on the woman not on the man so the thing that um oh i thought you wrote great question to me and i was like oh that's so nice yeah. um the 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 thing that i was so surprised by was that um uh what's her name ellie sheva was that her name Elisheva, yeah. Um, that Elisheva was so opposed to being in a relationship with him um, because he was divorced. Now, if we had time to interview her, it could have been because he wasn't upfront with her. That sometimes bothers people. Um, it could have been that he was divorced at all, right? Now, I could imagine that a person who's 22 dating a man who's been divorced and has a family, that's a whole other ball of wax. We're talking about a guy who's 30, which is still quite a bit older than she is, but a guy who's 30 who just happens to be a guy who was in a relationship that didn't work out and now he's a single man. So in Jewish law, that shouldn't have mattered to her. But again, had the cards been flipped and had she been the one who was uh, divorced, that actually could have mattered to Amir. So I was just fascinated with the fact that the TV show decided to kind of flip that on its head um, and make him the one who had been divorced. I think. 
regarding Elisheva, um, it's hard for a, a young woman of her age who's never been married to uh, relate to uh, the situation of a divorce. Yeah. So um, she's so, it's something that it's hard, it's almost incomprehensible to, to her. Uh, so um, she doesn't want to stick around for an explanation. That's the unfortunate thing. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't have any experience with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think when it comes to just even the normal world, even if you've been divorced or not, the idea of someone who has had experience in relationships versus someone who hasn't had experience in relationships, it's often less exciting or more nerve wracking for the person who's more experienced to be in a relationship with someone who has not really had experiences in a romantic partnership. So I told even. Oh, I'm sorry. It might actually be similar to uh, somebody expecting a virgin, uh, male or female, yeah, uh, and then finding out that that person has a little bit of experience there. Totally, there. totally, totally. And I think that Renee brings up an interesting point that there is still a stigma because the community would question why she had to resort to a divorcee. Yeah, sort of. Except for again, usually that's the. Usually it's not something that, like, that is seen in, if anybody saw the show, um, they there was um, a whole plot line about when you do resort to dating someone who is a divorcee or someone who's a little bit older. Oh, or, Shtisa, Shtisa. Yeah. It is. Okay, great. Yeah. I just want to remember which Orthodox show I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, so, so that is something. It would be surprising to me if that happened in a modern Orthodox and in their kind of um, community, but it's possible, I guess. It's possible that she would think of herself as being looked down upon, maybe not pretty enough, maybe not worthy enough to be with somebody who was um, who not been used before. You're saying you think it would be surprising in an Orthodox context? Because I don't think it's surprising. I mean, I think yeah. Um, no, I mean, this idea, what Renee's bringing up, you know, for people who watch Thistle, that was very much, you know, with Akiva, the main character, whose first crush is this woman, Ali Sheva, who's divorced or her twice widowed with a son. And everyone is like, like, they can't fathom why he would be interested in her. It's like, you're pure, so to speak. You know, you're, you don't, you're not damaged. Why would you date someone who has all this baggage attached? You know, he's like, because I, you know, I like her. Um, but it, there's sort of this strong sense. There's like a really strong stigma. And I think that's definitely, you know, a stigma um, that's out there. It's interesting to note, you know, when Yifat as Perach is online flirting with Rafi, she knows he's a divorcee, right? It, it came up, and, and this is what Amir was sort of touching on. That his profile, like the the short header, was you know thirty, you know, was Shloshim Garush, like thirty year old divorcee, right? That's like the top thing that comes up on the profile was thirty year old divorcee. So, and that's you know for him that was like a, um, you know, for him that like the fact that that's sort of how he's being defined. Um, like, you know, is tough for him that it's sort of like, well, this is how my life is being, uh, you know, described to the world. But yet, nevertheless, he fought, is willing to go out with him. And then even when he says, oh, I'm fat, she's like, okay, like, that's fine. Um, but he fought, I think, is in a different place than Elisheva. He fought is 
been living in the area for a while, has been trying to date, right? Presumably she's been sort of through this process with so many people, um, right? Barbara knows that Akiva was tarnished as well, but only after Elisheva, right? Elisheva was the, well, yeah, initially at least. Um, but, you know, in this case, Ifat, I think she, in her mind, she's like, she's just sort of sick of it and is like just looking to find someone who's nice. And she's like, I don't care if you're fat. I don't care if you're divorced. Like, you know, she just wants to settle down. As opposed, right, she's had no luck in the dating field, as her name says. As opposed to Elisheva, who just moved to the area. She's 22. Like, you know, she meets this guy who she's like, oh, this guy is great. And then when she finds out he's a divorcee, she's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not, I'm not there, right? But she's in a very different place than Yifat. She hasn't yet gotten jaded by the Bika, by the swamp. Yeah. Gosh. Jen. Yeah. Uh, who, who was that uh, rather heavy guy that she she was uh, had coffee with? Was that just accidentally? I guess when she so, finally set down yeah, that coffee. So, that, so that's what Nati is trying to figure out because <laughs> Nati's right as Rafi is saying, "Oh, I'm really fat," so and so forth, and she's like, I, "I'm still interested in going out with you." And so then he, you know, he stands her up, expecting her to then call and say, "The guy stood me up again," and then for Nati to show up and sort of be there and you know, you know, keep her company or whatever. And so, like, when Nati doesn't get a call for a while, you know, Renee says Hashem's intervention, but, like, right, Nati doesn't get a call for a while. And he's like, what's going on? By the way, Cafe Bagina, I love, like, I used to go there all the time. It's a, it's a great coffee shop. So um, highly recommend if you're ever in the Katamon area of Jerusalem. But anyway, um, plug, a little plug for Cafe Bagina. But, but um, you know, Nati doesn't get a call for a while, and he's like he's trying to figure out what's what's up. And not only is he out with someone, but she's with someone who meets the description that Nati had written. Of, you know, I'm I'm fat and whatever. And so he's trying to figure out. We haven't figured out what happened. You know, how this guy magically showed up. He's talking about it with Amir. You know, he's like, I don't buy it. The, you know, the odds are too small. It just happens to be a guy all on his own. You know, like what? Who happens to be fat? So, yeah, miraculous intervention. But we don't know who that guy is. But I think the whole problem is Elisheva is uh, her sister. That she interfered, Mm -hmm. okay? And Elisheva thinks that maybe she's interested in the sister. And then that's why she doesn't want to have anything to do with him. She doesn't like the idea that he, he wasn't straightforward with her telling her at the beginning, but I really feel in the back of her mind, it has to do with her sister. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think about those three characters on like a spectrum, right? So we talked about how Elisheva is sort of new in town, has right no sense of, of being jaded, sort of very black and white. Again, what she said about her, you know, about people who aren't religious anymore. She said, like, I don't stay in touch with those people. Like, there's no point, right? It's sort of very, her life is much more, is much clearer. Um, that it's much less complicated because it's sort of like, oh, people who stop being religious, like, they're not in my circles anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm out, you know, not having anything to do with them. Um, and similarly, on the relationship friends, it's sort of, she seems like, right, why, why should she date, quote unquote, damaged goods? Like, just in the same way with her friends. Like I, I'm only interested in being with people who are, you know, pristine as it were. Yifat, we talked about how Yifat is kind of 
on the other's pole where she's like, I don't care if you're divorced and fat and whatever. Like, I just want to meet someone nice. And Reut is seems to be in the middle where she seems to be interested in Amir. And she seems to have a block probably because he's divorced, or that's at least a piece of it, that she seems to be intrigued by him, but it's like she won't date him because he's a divorcee, but she's kind of still interested in him, but she's like not yet at that point of where Ifad is at, of like being willing to go that far as to date someone who's damaged like that. So they're sort of all at different points along the spectrum. Wait, Elisheva could have taken some of it. You're saying Elisheva, Karen, you're saying Elisheva didn't, she didn't need to give that excuse. That's what you're saying? Yeah, Karen seems to be saying, you know, Elisheva, there's plenty of excuses she could have gave of, like, you know, I just got to town, I just started dating, blah, blah, blah. But, like, she doesn't, she seems to be, like, her worldview is very clear in black and white. And it's like, no, I don't want to date a divorcee. He's like, what if I told you right away? She's like, yeah, I would have said, it wouldn't have changed a thing. I wouldn't have been interested. Um, yeah. Wait, give that excuse only made him the bad guy? Made who? Oh, wait. You're saying with Karen, I'm trying to understand your comment. You're saying that he made him the bad guy only. That's it. You're divorced. Goodbye. I see. Yes. And she has some other stuff going on for her. Perhaps she just moved here. She's 22. Whatever it is. Because I kept thinking, you're not allowed to date a divorced person. But it when she talks about, or when you're talking about, well, she's only 22. Well, she could have said something. Which is what, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what I meant in terms of like the flipping of the of the halachic paradigm, right? That if it was the man, if it was the man dating a woman who had been divorced, some of those questions and some of those concerns are are real according to Jewish law, um, and some are not. Some are still a little bit silly and a little bit um, antiquated, but. It, there's no concern the other direction, right? In terms of in terms of potentially the the community, it, but the idea is that in this community, in this modern Orthodox community, it would be seen as sure. Maybe she would think that someone that the community would think less of her for dating a um, for dating a divorcee. But there's no there's no like category for which people would say like. Oh well, you didn't have the right shidduch, or you should have been—you know—you have all of these uh, things against you, and so you had to go with a divorcee. But I think in the world of—remember, this is a modern TV show, right? So even in the world of just but not so modern when you see the computers they're using, you know, it's like ten years ago. Um, sure, but I—but I think that there that there are there are things about just relationships in general that come up in this TV show that, that are real, right? That whenever you start dating someone, you wonder what are other people going to think of this person? What are other people going to think of my relationship? What does his or her past do to the way that now the community, the people around me are going to think of me? And so I agree with you, Karen, that he, that she, sorry, should have said something a little bit more upfront about, her concerns, because not only could they potentially help him in his future dating, but it would also allow her to say, like, this really doesn't have anything to do with you as a guy, right? It's not you, it's me. I I want to just be with somebody who's kind of, you know, in my same place in life, and you've had experience that I haven't had. So, um, so I think that there's a lot of 
like cultural pieces that are being brought in here that are not necessarily seen in Jewish tradition, but are being brought out as if they are um, traditional themes or goals. Yeah, I, I'll just, so we'll respond to the comment to Debbie or Steve, I can't see, but Debbie and Steve's um, comments in a bit. You know, I, I think the way we're approaching Elisheva, we're sort of assuming her to be a more nuanced person than she seems to be so far. And we're saying, oh, you know, she could say all these different things, but she seems to be someone who's like, oh, why would you talk to someone who's different? Like, why would you talk to someone who's not religious anymore? Right? Like, she seems to that just, like, think, of, approach the world in that way. I think we're giving her too much credit for at least the way she's been portrayed so far, which is like, no, I don't talk to people who are not religious. No, I don't talk to, you know, I don't date divorcees. Like, right, it's like, the, she's very young. Um, and that kind of comes across, right? She, right, she doesn't, as Barbara says, she doesn't even want to be friends with him she's sort of like there's like this very clear very sort of naive way of looking at the world of like oh no like i wouldn't of course i wouldn't talk to you if you're divorced you know like all of a sudden it shifts everything um you know getting to this question about the ability to to divorce um you know so there there is in right the jewish marriage traditionally is a one-sided right it's it's very weighted one-sidedly and that a man marries a woman and not vice versa um and so similarly when it comes to getting divorced in a traditional context it's the man who has to divorce his wife and not vice versa now there are certain cases in which a you know in which the woman can demand a get because her husband's not meeting his obligations to her um but in a, you know, in sort of the straightforward traditional context, it, it is very different in that a man, for any reason, you know, can just say, I'm not interested in marrying this woman anymore. Back in the day, he didn't even necessarily have to tell her. He could just give a get to a messenger who would give it to her, and she wouldn't even know beforehand necessarily. And just, you know, so like that has changed. And now we even see in, in the Talmud how those things are shifting. Um, and they say, you know, a woman needs to be made aware before beforehand that uh, she's being divorced. But it's still a one-sided arrangement, and different movements have tried to create different fixes for how to m- make some of those problems go away. Um, in the conservative movement, there's a couple. The Lieberman Clause, which is a clause put into the ketubah, is the main way of trying to sort of course correct and allow for um, – civil divorces to effectuate a Jewish divorce. Um, in the Orthodox world, the, it's a, um, what we call a halachic prenup, which is a separate document signed before the wedding that does a similar, a similar thing that says, you know, if a civil divorce happens, now the ketubah essentially comes into it. The ketubah, by the way, is a, a list of obligations of a husband to his wife and, 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 if he doesn't meet those obligations, right, if they're getting divorced, he has to give her all those things. So what the halakhic prenup does, essentially, it says, now once the civil divorce takes effect, now he's obligated to do all those things, including pay for all of her costs of food and housing and all these things, which is a very high amount, until he gives her again. Um, and it says, especially problematic for women who wants to get and husband doesn't want to give, or missing or missing an action guys in Israel. Correct. So, um, Rashad says the conservative movement uses the halakhic prenup as well. Great. Um, the difference between orthodoxy and the conservative, conservative movement is in orthodoxy, that's the only, right? So 
if we sort of look, go spectrum wise, right, we've had this issue, you know, a major issue in the Jewish world of agunot, of what we, agunot literally means chained women. And that is women who, whose husbands either have, are refusing to give them a get, or in certain cases, the husbands went missing, we don't know where they are. And we don't have any reason to suspect that they're dead, but we just don't know what happened to them. Um, and so the wives become chained. They become stuck because they can't remarry until either they get proof that the, you know, the husband died or the husband issues a get. The attempted course correction for that in orthodoxy is the halachic prenup, which like I'm not allowed to officiate a wedding without a halachic prenup. Um, uh, like it's sort of there, there's an attempt to make it standard that all um, weddings done in the Orthodox world have this document, which essentially forces the husband to give the get to his wife, but it's not universal and it doesn't solve the case. Or I think it does actually solve the missing person's case. Um, if the husband says, you know what, I'm willing to pay $6,000 a day out of spite because I don't want to give her a divorce, like, or whatever the amount is, theoretically, he, you know, he could continue, you know, for all time paying $6,000 a day or something to his wife rather than giving her a, a simple piece of paper that, you know, ends the, his obligations. Um, but it, it's definitely easier for a man to get out of a relationship than a woman in general within, you know, the Jewish, traditional Jewish context. And and the, the piece of that, that that is most important to understand is that it's not just about separation, right? So in the conservative movement, if you have the Lieberman clause in your ketubah, then you don't necessarily need the halachic prenup, though sometimes people choose to have it. But if you don't have the Lieberman clause, with which most people choose to not have for, as I mentioned before, people watch the show, we could do a whole class on, um, they do have the halachic prenup because for the same reasons as Rabbi Pernick just mentioned, it it um, it guards them in a certain way for their relationship if, if, if it falls apart. The piece that's most important to understand, and Rabbi Pernick kind of glossed over this a little bit, but I just want to make it really clear, is the get. It's not just that you decide to live in two different homes and you go to the civil courts and you figure out custody and all those kinds of things. It's that there is a process of giving a get. And I don't know about the reform movement, um, whether or not this is even necessary, but in the conservative movement and in the orthodox movements, it is done exactly the same way. Um, and that for a lot of conservative Jews who find their lives mostly in an egalitarian setting is extremely problematic because even if you are in a world in which your voice is heard and your voice is uplifted to the same level as a man's, when it comes to divorce, even in the conservative movement, it is the case that the get ceremony, which is a piece of paper that's folded in a certain way and dropped into the hands of the woman, needs to still be done in that exact way. It can't be the opposite. It can't be that a woman drops that piece of paper in the man's hand. Um, and for some people, that's very problematic. And for other people, it allows them to 
to feel like they're being drawn back into the history of what a ketubah was for because it's the mere experience of receiving the ketubah. The woman receives the ketubah under the chuppah and in a get ceremony, she is given a get um, to basically say, I'm giving you that which your ketubah um, has written in it. So that, I just want to make that extremely clear for people who didn't understand the get the get experience, um, that that's where it is the most um, uh, divided. It, that's where it's the most kind of focused on the man. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is that when these laws were being written about divorce and, and marriage, really, men could have multiple partners. Women could not. Women belonged to a man right and in order for them to belong to the next man they had to not be um they had to not be no they had to not be uh associated with the first man so th that also is a little bit um well first of all sexist but, but that's a little bit antiquated also when we think about how marriage and divorce works and that's why it's that's why it's much more on on the man to do it because he can have multiple partners, but the woman needs to get out of it because she can't go on with her life if she's chained to the same man. Rai Parnik asked me a question and I said no to him quickly, but I'll tell you all what the question was. Um, can women be aiding? Can women be... Um, um, witnesses. 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 <laughs> witnesses for a conservative get. And the answer is there's no such thing as a conservative get. And no, women can't be women can't be witnesses. Um, so what he's referring to, what Rabbi Pernick is referring to, is that there are certain rabbis that will allow women to sign a ketubah, um, but on the get side of things, it has to be all men. Today, um, Barbara asked in the reform or said in the reform movement. There has been a trend towards gets. Often women want them as a way of emotionally separating. The get becomes a formal separation of the couple. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I've known a few very close friends who have gone through the get ceremony, and it's either extremely traumatic or it is seen as a very um, supportive and, and therapeutic way of separating. Yeah. Any other questions? Like, why is a get called a get? Because it's hard to talk about in English. That's my biggest question. Any <laughs> Any other comments that people had? I'll just note that as far as, is even more than that though, like I can't write it, right? I can't write again. I can't be real. I, I, there is one rabbi in the Southeast who does Gittin. He's 97 years old. He was sent here by Rav Moshe Feinstein to Memphis. Um, and he is the rabbi in the Southeast who does Gittin. Um, and, you know, and, and now there's, you know, since he's getting really older, there's like someone else who's, who's st standing in, but it's like very, the whole process is very, very precise um, in terms of the, the type of paper that's used, the type of ink that's used, the way it's written. You have to list all possible nicknames for your name. You know, anything that anybody calls you is listed there. Just let lest there be any doubt about who is being referred to in this document, right? It's like this incredibly formulaic process, which is why very, very few rabbis who are really experts actually do get in. It's very different than a ketubah where anyone can write a ketubah as long as they have the right words in it. Um, and, you know, two witnesses can sign it. 
it's a legal document, but it's my, the sort of on the legal side of things is sort is taken less seriously. The name of the city, you know, there's certain things about how you spell cities' names on the get that has to be precise, that has to be exact, or it doesn't work. Like it's is there's a lot of very very strong rules about it. It's also part of the reason why your ketubah has to be so precise because your ketubah is then used at, at times, not always, but is used as reference to the get which is written. Um, I, and by the way, I misspoke. Um, and when you when you uh, quoted me, I realized that I misspoke. The 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 bait dean in Los Angeles, for example, for if I am to send a congregant to to have a get. Um, a bait dean with for um, a get ceremony. There is the person who runs that bait dean is actually a conservative rabbi who I would send them to. However, the process by which it is done and the way in which the ceremony is conducted is exactly the same. So he himself is not an orthodox rabbi, and I actually don't know how many. Um, cases he receives because most people when they get to this point in their lives they want to go to the person who will have the the most um uh what's the word I'm looking, the most the fewest doubts the, yeah so there's they, no question there's no yeah so if they were to get married again like there's no doubt about it so i don't know how many he does josh i was just wondering do people have to go to memphis actually when they when they when they get again to, to see that um, rabbi or do, do they have to be there in person so you actually don't need to be there in person. You can have shlichim, you can have messengers, which is often the way it's done. I think people, so fortunately, since I've arrived, we haven't had any get any get in there. Rabbi Gabe, my predecessor, did have a couple. Um, so from so there was this rabbi, there is this rabbi in Memphis. Um Again, because he's getting old and his handwriting and his vision and all of that is sort of getting worse, I think there's another rabbi out of Dallas who is able to do Gitin, but he is not – basically, he'll only do it when this other rabbi in Memphis says, like, I allow him to do it because – Rav Moshe Feinstein, who's like the big decisor of uh, Jewish law in the Orthodox world, like – placed this guy in Memphis and said, you're responsible for the Southeast. So like no one else wants to touch the Southeast. <laughs> um, so the one Gitten case that I've been involved in was not a New Orleans case. It's a Charleston where I used to live. And it's actually interesting because in that case, the woman is the one who is, who has refused to receive the get. Um, and which is, you know, again, as we touched and it's, it's sort of one-sided and usually the woman is chained where the, and the man can sort of get out of it. In this case, the man really just wants it to be done with him. The woman, even though they've been divorced for a long time, she refuses to accept the get for whatever reason. So, um, so it does happen the other way periodically, but it's not as severe. It's not as problematic. Um, but even there in Charleston, it's, this, you know, it's the same rabbi who out of Memphis is the one who wrote the get, but there they... There's like another rabbi, I think in Milwaukee, who sort of helped sort of read over it and just, you know, said like, yes, it's sufficiently legible and it's fine. Um, but yeah, long story short, there there is not a requirement to go to Memphis. Usually the the emissaries, like the shlichim, whoever, you know, the often both sides will sort of have a representative and often that those people 
are likely, or if there's like a rabbi who's doing it, the rabbi will go in person and receive the physical handwritten document and will bring it back um, is often how it's done. There's so like in the Charles really, case, that's how it's done. There's a really um, good Israeli movie uh, called Get. Uh, I think it's about uh, six or 10 years ago. Um, and it dealt with how harsh uh, the whole um, uh, Beit Din system is as far as trying to get a get when the, the, ma- the man does not want to give it. Um, and it, it goes on for three or four years. And uh, they always take the side of the man, never understanding her, her need to get on with her life. You know, but it's really, really good movie. Yeah, this is something that is that is huge in Israel, that they're constantly trying to fight specifically the idea of Aguna. Um, and so if you if you're ever curious about this topic, it's specifically rampant in Israel. Um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Rabbanut owns this process. Um, and that's very hard for people who are trying to do it um, in a certain way. Oh. One of my comrades asked, is a concubine considered property like a wife is? Is it necessary for her to be released as the wife is via the get? I, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't, so, I, I don't think so. So actually, well, so the, the three obligations that we talked about that a husband has to his wife, the Hebrew is onataksita, um, basically sexual relations, clothing, and um, food, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so those obligations in the Torah actually come from the concubine, that if a man designates a, a slave as his slave wife, essentially, and then he takes another slave wife or just another wife in general, he is not allowed to stop doing these three things for his concubine. And if he does so, the concubine goes free without needing to pay off any debts, right? Because usually we're talking about debt slavery in these cases. Um, but is that again? Well, so in the, no, so, but in that case, right, that's the case of a, of a concubine and there, there's no get, but she she goes free. She's freed, and um, yeah, she's freed, and and there there doesn't seem to be a get, but also there's no longer a debt. There's no debt or get. Okay, but so it was never a kuba in the first place. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why I that's why I assumed the answer was no. So so the answer is sort of. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, so there's, in that case, there's a, you know, the concubine is sort of ritualized, but there's no ketubah there right. um, because she sort of has the status as a slave. And then she goes free without needing to pay off any debts if he doesn't meet these obligations. Again, those same obligations that we say, well, if, if he's required to give his concubine these things, then he's certainly required to give his wife these things. But in the case of a wife, then he has to give her a get and pay her the ketubah values um, if he doesn't meet these obligations. Any other last, other last question? There was, the, there was a question I saw about the conservative, I mean, I saw the um, coercion, but also the, is there the efforts to retry this imbalance of power in the conservative, to rectify this imbalance of power? Is that speaking about the fact that in the conservative movement for Gittin, for Bonnie, for, are you saying the fact that for Gets, for Gittin, only men can be part of that? Or the fact that it's sort of the one-sidedness. That 
that it's that it's so one-sided that the woman really cannot initiate it that, that, that everything stems from the man is there any effort or thought in the conservative movement or effort among women in the conservative movement to change this uh, yes, <laughs> to both of those things. I want to know what's happening, what's going on with this, you know, in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know that anything is being talked about right now, um, like in 2020. Um, but I do think that that part of what, what the Lieberman Clause was set out to do was that the, um, the that was created by a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lieberman, go figure, um, who decided that that was one of the ways to make it a little bit more egalitarian. The ketubah itself, the traditional ketubah itself, is not an egalitarian text by any stretch of the imagination. So by having the Lieberman clause inside that text, it does allow for the woman to feel like if it, if she is not... A, able to receive the release that she um that she wants from her husband from the marriage that she has the right to try to convene a bait dean to make that um to make that happen so that that is the part of uh, the conservative movement that's already been put in place and yes there are many women and, and men i i wouldn't say just women who are fighting this case as one to be made more egalitarian just like women are trying to make marriages more egalitarian or um sure right <laughs> like people people are trying to make experiences more egalitarian in the liberal jewish world um, and get is one of those things that is so technical that it's harder to make egalitarian, but there is push to make it at least the initiation of a get to be a more egalitarian topic. Does that and help? I'll say. Uh, was that Bonnie? Okay. I'll, I'll, that was Bonnie. That was Bonnie. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, I'll chime in with the big challenge in this is that if it's a challenge with both the Lieberman clause and with the conservative movement, try, you know, if they sort of change the nature of Gittin, of Getz, is that if the marriage is seen as a kosher Orthodox marriage by an Orthodox Beitin, uh, an Orthodox court, but the Get is not seen as kosher by the, that Orthodox Beitin, then the woman is still married, right. even if a conservative mar- movement said she's no longer married. Yeah. And any subsequent marriage and any subsequent children she has would have the status of being a mom's heir, which is like the worst thing that could happen because a mom's heir basically can only marry another mom's heir, which basically means any subsequent children, I mean, usually translated as a bastard child. It's worth noting in in Judaism, a bastard child is not a child born, you know, out of wedlock or before, you know, before someone is married, but, if someone is married to one person and then has a child with someone else, that child has this status, which basically means they live as an outcast for their, you know, their life in terms of who they're allowed to marry and so forth. So that's the reason there's so much sensitivity around Gittin is because if someone says, you know what, this marriage was a kosher marriage and the get was not a kosher get, and then she gets remarried and has more kids and those kids want to function within the Jewish world and particularly in the Orthodox world, they're going to have a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And there's nothing that they can do to undo it. If there's no way for a mom's there to unbecome a mom's there, 
they're stuck with it the rest of their lives. So it's a it's a pretty big deal and like a really tragic situation that people want to avoid sort of at all costs. There there are two vote. Um, I believe one was actually written by Rabbi Elliot Dorf, who my congregants know very well as one of our congregants. Um, that is that talks about how Mamzerut is not something that the conservative movement holds by any longer. So it would really only be um, something that is is an issue if the person then tried to live in the orthodox world. Um, but Rai Pernick is correct that there is, and it, it's not just with, with get, right? It's with this idea of marriage too, that anything that could be seen as the start or the stop could be the start of, of generations past yourself. All of a sudden there's these questions of, Am I doing this in such a way that my future generations will be set up for the lives that they want to lead and for success? And some people see that as a a way of saying, I'm going to stick it to the man and I'm going to do what I believe in and I am going to get married the way I want and I'm going to get divorced the way that I want and all the rest of it. And there are other people that say... You know, I'm I'm really nervous that this could turn into something that is bad for my children or my grandchildren. Um, and bad meaning the Ravanut won't accept them. Not bad meaning we're going to have a terrible marriage if we get married by a reform rabbi. By you know, I would never mean that. But this idea that if you're not, if things are not done in the quote correct way, um, which is what. Orthodox Jews mean when they say halachic, right? That's the correct way. If things are not done to a certain standard, then what could happen to their children and their grandchildren um, is a question for some people. So, um, yeah, it's 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 really it's really tough, and um, we've gone seven minutes over, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But if anybody's ever interested in this topic. I specifically, as a woman and a rabbi, um, deal with this a lot because if I'm doing a wedding, that's already something that is not seen in the traditional Orthodox world. Um, and so there are a lot of conversations to be had around that if a couple is nervous about what that looks like for their children and their grandchildren. Um, yeah, just another. another. Moms Doreen uh, deal with this in Israel. Um, so uh, do they just say, you know, screw it and um, I'll get on with my life in a non-religious way? Um, There's no civil marriage in Israel. so Right. But, another, but if you're Israeli, just like you want to get married, you go to you Cyprus. You go to Cyprus. Oh. <laughs> what about Mamzerim? And- I'm saying they have to go to Cyprus to get married. You know, they can't get married in Israel unless they marry another Mamzer. Like it's, you know, it's a pretty, because there's no civil marriage in Israel. So, right. So that's what there's, it's. And that's if your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, right? It can create multi-generational issues. So Rabbi Schatz touched on. So yeah, in Israel, where there's no civil marriage, I guess the, really the only out is to get married in another country and come back because the, the Rabbanut won't marry you if your mom's there, you know, unless you're marrying another mom's there. So to end on a really happy note, <laughs> right. <laughs> everything's going to be great. Your marriage is fine, I'm sure, and your children will be lovely. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, so next week we will discuss the sixth episode. Um, and again, I'm really happy to have these kinds of, con- I'm sure Rai Pornick is as well, really happy to have these conversations. So if you're ever interested in a conversation that we obviously cut short because the class is not supposed to be as long as we even kept you tonight, um, just let us know and we would be happy to have the conversation, either one of us or both of us, 
Um, it's really important and interesting stuff. And I don't know about Rabbi Pernick, but I deal with it almost weekly, if not monthly, if not yearly. So I'm very happy to talk to you about it and hope you have a really nice night. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tba.org.